That's why I love the tide pools is they are just jam packed with life. And if you're looking from here and you're looking out into the distance, it's just rocks covered with seaweed. You know, yeah. you can't really see anything until you look really close and you look in between rocks and can start to get an eye for what's what. And then the world really blooms. Hello and welcome to Golden State Naturalist, a podcast for anyone who's ever noticed how much more there is to see when you slow down and take a closer look. I'm Michelle Fulner, and today we're talking tide pools with Michelle Kunst, whose voice you just heard. In this episode, we discuss the benefits of being green, Aristotle, tiny baby sea stars, tide tables, predators that don't look like predators, tube feet, and the mind-boggling richness and complexity of the place where the ocean meets the land. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but I want to remind you that this is the final episode of season three of this podcast. After this one, I'll be taking a break to get out into the field for a bunch of interviews and to start turning them into episodes for season four. I'm currently in touch with so many experts that I know you're going to love. So after this episode, listen out for a mid-break update that'll be coming your way soon. Soonish. And if you want to keep up with my adventures while I'm on break, make sure to follow me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram or TikTok, because if you like the podcast, you'll also like the things that I share over there, which are things like naturalist vocabulary words, species features, like a recent video about Toyon, and really anything that might serve to help you deepen your relationship with the natural world in California. Another way to keep up with me during the break is to join my email list, where I occasionally send out newsletters, links to recent episodes, and announcements. You can sign up for that at goldenstatenaturalist.com. And of course, make sure you're following the podcast in your favorite listening app to be notified when new episodes do start coming out. If you'd like to help support this work financially so I can keep bringing great content to all Californians for free, you can join the Golden State Naturals Patreon community for as little as $4 a month. You can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash Michelle Fulner. That's Michelle with two L's and Fulner is F-U-L-L-N-E-R. But now let's get to the episode. Michelle Kunst has been enamored with the ocean and the incredible variety of creatures living there for as long as she can remember. She spent much of her childhood at the beach, and when she was old enough, earned her bachelor's degree in environmental science from Cal Poly Humboldt in 2019. Since then, she's guided sea kayaking outings in Northern California, has been an intertidal naturalist in Alaska, was the executive director of the Trinidad Coastal Land Trust, a California Fish and Wildlife Department biologist, and is currently the Marine Natural Resources Program Manager for the Resigini Rancheria, where she oversees the implementation of the tribe's marine monitoring program. So without further ado, let's hear from Michelle Kunst on Golden State Naturalist. I met up with Michelle on a brisk spring morning all the way back in April on a sandy Humboldt County beach that gave way to rocks as it sloped down into the ocean. What town are we closest to? We are closest to Trinidad, so we're about two miles south of the small town of Trinidad. The tide was almost all the way out when we arrived, so we walked down to the place where sand transitioned into rocks of all sizes, from pebbles to boulders. And those rocks were covered with living things. What kind of life are we looking at right <laughs> yeah, now? Yeah, <laughs> so we are in the upper reaches of the intertidal zone. And so these areas are exposed to air for actually the majority of the day. And so we see a unique assemblage of species. Here. When we get back, join Michelle and I for a journey into this liminal space between ocean and land to discover what kind of life makes a home between worlds. And then for a conversation about what makes intertidal zones some of the most unique and surprising habitats on Earth. 
All of that after a quick break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome back. Today on Golden State Naturalist, Michelle Kunst and I are exploring the narrow area where the ocean meets the land, the intertidal zone. So first, slip on some shoes you don't mind getting wet, and then step into the upper intertidal with us. This is the zone that stays dry for much of the day, which means that a specific kind of life is adapted to live there. We have a bunch of barnacles. We have a couple of different kinds. We saw both acorn barnacles, which are sort of squat little circles that look to me like bird's nests covered in plates of calcium carbonate, which is what seashells are made out of, with almost like a little bird's beak sticking right out of the center. And we saw gooseneck barnacles, which are more elongated and look to me like dragon toes sticking out of the rocks. I think there's a whole dragon in there, actually. But many of the barnacles in the upper inner tidal had something in common. They're actually really tiny. Here's a bigger one. Cute. And here's some smaller ones. Wow. And I wouldn't have even seen those. Yeah, and they're so small because, like I said, we're at the upper levels of the intertidal zone. So they're only getting covered by waves some of the time, just parts of the day, like okay. maybe a few hours every day. And with the water comes food. Mm -hmm. So they're not growing as big because they're up here and they're getting oh. less wave splashes on them. So they're getting less plankton. So will that same species get bigger lower down? Yeah, in the yep. okay. yeah. And sometimes, you know, you'll see some, oh, here's yeah, a bigger on one the down here. <laughs> and then mixed in with these gooseneck barnacles is our Pacific blue mussel, of course. And so we're kind of on the beach side of the ocean right now. So it's a little bit more protected on this side. Mm -hmm. So you might see some different animals on the other side of the rock that's more ex exposed to the wave action. So within feet or even inches of each other, you have these radically different little microhabitats. The side of the rock facing the ocean is different from the side of the rock facing land. The top part of a tall rock can be really different from the bottom half of that same rock. And then, of course, going deeper into the intertidal zone can also change which species can live in an area. So Michelle and I left the relative dryness of the beach behind and started making our way across rocks intermittently surrounded by water, even at low tide. As we went, there was life everywhere we looked. And I wondered how we could make our way through without doing harm to these incredibly special organisms. What should we touch? What should we not touch? Yeah. How should we be safe? All of that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. So 
I think that it's just really essential to remember that we are visitors to this ecosystem. I tell this to every group of people that I bring out here because typos are really sensitive habitats. Mm -hmm. And so what that means is to walk really slow. Mm. Our feet are our kind of biggest threats to the tide pools. Mm. So walking slow helps us really like see where we're walking because mm -hmm. rocks are just covered in life, both seaweeds and animals. So walking slow, it also protects us because it's also very slippery. I was going to say, like, I am the clumsiest. <laughs> so, I almost, like, tripped over so many Yeah, rocks. when I see uh, people, like, here. running through the tide pools, I'm like, no! Mm. <laughs> um, both for themselves and for the critters. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, walking slow, and we actually try not to handle animals too much. Mm -hmm. Like, sometimes I think it's okay. Look, here's a sea star that we're walking oh, up yeah, against. And so this is actually kind of a, a good opportunity to touch an animal yes. because it's not connected to the rocks right now. And so maybe this sea star was feeding and when it's feeding, it has less of its tube feet attached to the rock. And so maybe a wave just knocked it loose. Mm -hmm. And so this is actually a great time to check it out because you can pick it up and you get to observe it a little bit more closely. So we have the sea star's tube feet here. Oh, yeah. They're so cute. <laughs> okay, if you're like, but sea stars have arms, not feet. Just know that if you turn a sea star upside down, the bottom of each of its little arms is covered in hundreds of teeny tiny tube feet that look to me like the ends of super skinny glass noodles, you know, like those clear noodles, just groping in every direction. And they use them to move around. Sunflower sea stars, which have 24 arms, can have up to 15,000 tube feet. But we weren't looking at a sunflower sea star. So this is an ochre star. It's probably one of our most common sea stars out here. And it's in the phylum echinoderm. Hi, so if you're like me, you might start to tune out when you hear words like phylum and genus, because these terms trigger unhappy memories of high school biology, a subject for which your teacher may have been, say, just for example, a football coach who would rather be talking to the local newspaper about the kid in your grade who's destined to end up in the NFL rather than be in a classroom with you and your peers, and who consequently presents dry facts in a manner devoid of anything resembling meaning, and then will just leave the room regularly for long periods of time while you take notes out of your textbook. But stick with me for the next 30 seconds, because I promise Michelle's about to lay down a helpful concept, and you don't even have to write anything down. And I don't really like to focus on like you know, the scientific organization of species. But I do think it's interesting to point out the relationship of different species in each phylum, because then you're kind of like, oh, like, how are they similar? How are they different? And we can talk about other animals that are in the phylum, echinoderm, but that word breaks down to mean spiny skin. Mm. And so you can see all these little white calcium carbonate bumps yeah. on here. And when you feel it, it's it's pretty firm and, and like right. pokey if you want to touch it. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah. rough, yeah. It's, it's like very, very like gritty sandpaper. Yeah. It's like a, the kind of creature you would expect to be slimy. Uh -huh. It's really, really yeah, not. Totally, yeah. And, and some sea stars are more slimy. But so I want to talk a little bit also about the, you know, how sea stars are feeding and, and moving around. So if you look at this, the top surface, you see that hole there? Uh -huh. It's like this orange colored disc. Mm -hmm. That's called the madreporite. And on the underside, we have the tube feet. So, I love the tube feet. Yeah. And so, you know how we, we have a cardiovascular system. Our heart pumps blood throughout our bodies. But the sea stars and other echinoderms have a hydrovascular Ooh. system, 
which means that they are sucking water in through their madreporite. Not right now because it's out of water, but when it's in a tide pool, it's sucking water through its madreporite and it's directing it to its tube feet. And the tube feet are acting, you might want to scooch up a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to get me. <laughs> Always got to watch your back yeah, at the ocean. Totally. <laughs> um, so that the water is being diverted to its tube feet, which is acting like a suction cup onto the rocks. And that's what keeps it in place. But also that's how it feeds. So it's attaching onto things like mussels are the ochre star's primary food. And it uses those tube feet in that suction to pry that muscle apart. And then the coolest part, and some people may already know this, but it sticks, it's, it pulls its stomach outside of its mouth. So this is its oral disc here. Oh my pulls its stomach out of its mouth and it inserts it into the muscle shell. And just like us, it has digestive enzymes that it uses to break down that muscle, that muscle's tissue into nutrients. Oh my God. And that'll take hours. Sometimes it's there hunched over a muscle shell taking hours to pry the muscle shell apart, stick its stomach into the muscle, and digest it. I just want to take a moment to express my heartfelt gratitude that I can digest a pizza inside of my body, and I don't have to turn myself inside out, even a little bit, to get the calories I need to keep on living. I'm happy for the sea stars that that works for them, though. I'm sure it's a much better strategy in a tide pool than in a Domino's. You are cool. I want to hold it, okay? Yeah, hold it. Is there any part I shouldn't touch? Should I try to not touch um, it? Just touch feet? it gently, you know? Okay. Yeah. Okay. And so I was just starting to get at how we're, you want to avoid handling animals. And that the primary mm -hmm. reason for that is because the sea star will often be really firmly attached to rocks. Right. And so if you are trying to pick it up, you could really hurt it by breaking off its two it's feet. little feet. Yeah. They're so cute. Yeah. Don't break them. Yeah. But since the sea star was just on the sand and, and it's it not really attached down. to anything, <laughs> like so we might want to just put it on the rock, mm -hmm. maybe in that little pool there and, yeah. and, and it'll be fine. Make a little happy spot. Yeah. And it. it'll use its two feet to attach on. So we put our little ochre star friend back into the water so its hydrovascular system would allow it to attach to a rock. And we started slowly walking deeper down into the intertidal zone trying our best to step on bare rock and sand as we made our way to a place Michelle wanted to show me. So when the tide gets really low, this rock has this amazing pool under it that oh, you can explore. Uh -huh. And we can maybe step over some of these rocks to get over yeah. there and check it out. Cool. We had now reached the lowest tide of the day. Yeah, what time? What time is the lowest tide supposed to be? Yeah, it's at 7.55. Okay. Oh, so oh, right we're now. right there. 7.56 right now, okay. So it was the perfect time to see creatures that are usually underwater, and much less accessible to us. Oh, look, at that oh, urchin. look oh, we got goodness. another critter. Hello. Oh, lots of critters. Oh, wow. yeah, yeah, look at there that. There was a big, spiny purple sea urchin, more ochre stars, and so much more life around us. So we moved in a little closer for oh. a better look. You know what this is? Hmm. Oh, we have lots of cool stuff to look at. <laughs> There's so many okay. cool things. Where do I start? Oh, my gosh. Okay, so <laughs> first of all, this is a purple urchin. Okay. We have an alive one here that's pretty big. It's massive. And we can look at that more closely in a second. And then we also have a dead urchin. This dead urchin was probably just eaten by something. Oh. Uh, maybe a seagull, maybe an otter, maybe an octopus, who knows. But you can kind of see there's like some goop in there. Some people out there listening may have eaten uni before. Mm -hmm. That's urchin gonads, mm -hmm. a delicacy in some parts of the world. But this little chunk here that I'm holding is its little feeding appendage. So it's oh. kind of like its mouth. Okay. Yeah. It's called an Aristotle's lantern. 
Aristotle's yeah. lantern? It's kind of disintegrated. If you're surprised that a Greek man who's been dead for over 2,000 years made an appearance in this conversation, so was I. And when Michelle mentioned this, I sort of thought that maybe there was an ancient story about something clever Aristotle said late one night by the flickering light of a lantern, but that's not it. Instead, the Aristotle's lantern, which is just the name of the mouth parts of a sea urchin, got its name because Aristotle drew a picture of this structure and said it looked like a horn lantern, which basically looks like a decorative lantern you'd see today with panes of glass around the outside of it. But in Aristotle's time, instead of glass, they used very thin slices of horns that let the light shine through. So here's what Aristotle said about the mouth parts of a sea urchin 2,000 years ago. In reality, the mouth apparatus of the urchin is continuous from one end to the other, but to outward appearance, it is not so, but looks like a horn lantern with the panes of horn left out. So Aristotle said this structure looks like a horn lantern, and that's why biologists now call sea urchin mouths Aristotle's lanterns. After we were done looking at the dead urchin, we turned our attention to the very spiny purple alive urchin. Check out this urchin, see if it's how Okay, so you're it touching is. it. It's not like poking yeah, you. Yeah, so obviously it's pretty pokey looking. Yeah. And so, you know, I was talking about the sea stars being in the phylum echinoderm. Mm -hmm. So our urchins are in the uh, phylum echinoderm and they're very obviously spiny skinned. But, you know, I'm not holding it very tough because I could break off these spines uh -huh. and I don't want to do that. But sometimes you can check out the bottom of an urchin uh -huh. and you can see it's feeding appendage and it's pretty cool. For more about purple sea urchins and particularly their relationship with kelp, check out the seaweed episode of Golden State Naturalist with Allison Poklemba which was recorded in the same intertidal area as this episode, just a couple of days apart. And after looking at the urchins, we made our way out a little farther and found a creature that I'm actually very jealous of in one significant way. So this is a giant green anemone. And since we've sort of moved into the mid intertidal now, okay. and so we're starting to see some different species, a lot more seaweed and this anemone, but it's closed because it is outside of the water. And so the anemones have a very soft body and they are vulnerable to desiccation, which mm. means that they can dry out. And so what they do when the tide goes out is that they'll close up their bodies so that they can protect some of that moisture. Mm. And then they'll also, a lot of times, will cover themselves with bits of shell and sand on their outer skin so that they can protect themselves, you know, at least a little bit from desiccation Get or their drying own out. Armor. There's sometimes you'll see an anemone that's totally covered in yeah. bits of shell and sand. And so, you know, I was talking about the echinoderms and we saw the urchins and the sea star. And I just want to introduce another phylum is Cnidaria, Ooh. which contains our sea anemones and our jellyfish. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, characteristics that tie them together are that they have a very simple body structure, generally round and like radially symmetrical. Okay. So like a jellyfish, you, you know, it has the tentacles that are yeah. that are symmetrical. Same with this anemone. And it has these tentacles Ooh, that if you've up, ever yeah. touched one, they're kind of sticky. Yeah. Like they kind of stick to your hand. And that's actually a, a microscopic stinging cell. Whoa. So you know how jelly, we all know jellyfish yeah. are, you know, sting. And so it's not really a sting enough to hurt me mm -hmm. like some jellyfish, but it's this little barbed stinging cell that is kind of just attaching to my finger and that's the stickiness that I'm wow. feeling. Yeah. Another really amazing thing about the giant green anemone is that they have a symbiotic relationship with a photosynthesizing alga. Mm -hmm. And so that's where this green, green color is coming from. 
is that they have al algae cells that live in their tentacles and live symbiotically together. And they get energy from that? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. So cool. Yeah, totally. So the algae is photosynthesizing and the anemone is getting food from that and the algae is getting habitat. I yeah. would totally be green <laughs> just so that I didn't have to eat as much and I could like run around. Yeah, totally. And not just have solar panels it's basically genius. and not worry about it. That it's would be genius. fantastic. Yeah, it's pretty cool. So for anyone keeping track at home, that is eating like a sea star? No. Eating like a giant green anemone? Yes. But they do still have to eat even though they get some energy from their photosynthetic algal friends. And typically their diet consists of things like crabs, sea urchins, and small fish. But just imagine with me swaying gently in a tide pool all day, getting energy from tiny green friends embedded in your body, being green, and then just eating the world's freshest sushi whenever it wandered by. They're living the dream. And when we'd finished checking this anemone out, we made our way toward a very strange creature that Michelle spotted from a distance. First passing a different sea star called a leather star, which is much smoother than an ochre star, almost to the point of feeling slimy. So it's going to have to live further down in the tide pools because it's more oh, vulnerable to desiccation again, just like the anemone. And Michelle picked up a rock with a dime-sized creature living on it that taught me that sea stars do not, in fact, spring out of the waves fully grown. They start as babies too. I've never seen one that tiny. It's so tiny. Is it a baby or is it? Yes. It's hard to identify them at this size, uh -huh. but my guess is that this is a baby ochre star. You can kind of see it has that like little star shape on the very center, which mm -hmm. ochre stars will have. So that's wow. my best guess. That is adorable. Yeah. This little guy was completely white not the vibrant purple or orange of the mature ochre stars. So it was hard to figure out a specific species. But other than the color difference, it looked almost like a tiny version of a perfect adult sea star, which is not the case in all phases of sea star development. I went down a bit of a YouTube rabbit hole where I found out that you can watch all kinds of videos that people have taken with very nice microscopes. And you can see the little blobs that do not look at all like sea stars that then turn into creatures that look like sea stars with a bunch of weird transparent stuff attached to them, and then eventually change into tiny sea stars like the one we found. After examining the baby, we put his little rock home back into its tide pool and continued on toward the being that Michelle had spotted before, always surrounded as we walked with tiny snails, seaweed, urchins, crabs, anemones, and so much more. So the closer you look, the more you see, which is the amazing thing about tide pools. Until we found the bizarre creature. I also wanted to point out this gumboot chitin here. Oh, hello. So is that one also attached? This one's pretty firmly attached. I just checked it, so we're not going to lift it up, but there okay. might be another chance to look at the underside of one because it's pretty interesting. Chitons, if you're not familiar, usually look a bit like somewhat flat roly-polies, even though they're not related. The gumboot chitin looks very different, but we'll get to that in a second. But that is a gumboot chitin, the biggest chitin species in the world. Oh, wow. Yeah. Some people refer to it as the wandering meatloaf. The wandering meatloaf. <laughs> wandering meatloaf is an incredibly apt description. It really looks like something that snuck out of, I would say my grandmother's kitchen, but she was a vegetarian, but surely somebody's grandmother's kitchen and just went sliding over the rocks in a tide pool for a laugh. But basically it's in the phylum mollusk, mollusca. So related to snails and shellfish and things like that. Octopus or octopus? Yes. Which is yes. so weird. Which to is me. crazy. I mean, that's yeah. just like a it's mind blowing. <laughs> totally. I know. It's crazy. But you know how a snail has one shell, mm -hmm. shellfish have two that fold together usually. 
Well, the chitin has eight shells that are overlapping. Mm. It's like plates, mm -hmm. kind of, but made out of calcium carbonate. And so they kind of interlock and they can kind of bend with each other so they can move over rocks in a bit more efficient manner. And then what's unique about the gumbu chitin is A, that it's huge, and B, that it's covered in this fleshy girdle. That's the red, kind of like rusty red-brown coating on it. But underneath that is eight shells that overlap and protect the body okay. of the chitin. Yeah. One of the mind-blowing things about tide pools is that you don't have to go too far out to find a different world. This is because the different parts of the intertidal zone are covered by water and have waves crashing on them for different amounts of time throughout the day. In the upper intertidal, you have an area that's dry more often than not. In the mid intertidal, it's dry part of the time, wet part of the time. And in the lower intertidal, it's covered in water most of the time. NOAA, the National Ocean and Atmospheric Administration, says that the lower intertidal zone is only exposed in the lowest spring tides. We didn't catch one of those super low tides, but we got as close to the lower intertidal as we could. All right, we trekked way out. <laughs> way out, it seemed like, but you know, it's like <laughs> 10 yards. <laughs> Took us a while. Took us a while. And now we found a little teeny tiny pool. Yeah. So in this pool, I'm looking at a a few different creatures. We have a tide pool sculpin. A sculpin is a fish that, if you're like me, you first learned about from a beer label. Right here, it's the color of the sand, so you can oh, yeah. just barely see it coming out. It's got a big head and like this small little tail that comes off of it and two little fins on either side. It's kind of cool. This They're very feathery looking. Yeah, it's very, there's, it's, there's like a transparent connection between those colors you can see mm. like I haven't yeah. seen that very much but yeah it looks it's like it's, beautiful. it's like spines it doesn't look like a fin yeah yeah and so these tide pool sculpins are incredibly diverse and when I say mm. tide pool sculpin that is a species but a lot of the sculpins and rockfish that people fish for out out in the deeper waters will spend their juvenile years in tide pools. Oh, okay. And so this could be a, a many, you know, a large number of species. But then I'm also seeing another species of anemone that we hadn't, haven't mm. seen yet. It's a burrowing anemone. Oh, wow. Um, and so it probably has like a length of its body under the sand oh that is anchoring it in place. And then it's sticking its tentacles out into the water to feed. And I was kind of talking about the nematocysts on the giant green anemone earlier. The nematocysts are the little stingers. I don't know if I mentioned why they have that, but the reason is because that's how they feed. So they will comb through the currents and little bits of plankton detritus will be kind of like stuck onto their tentacles because of those barbed stinging cells. And then they will bring those into their, their mouth, which is just the center of the anemone. And that's how they feed. And then I'm also seeing one more interesting thing in here. We have a coral. Ooh, so that, that orange yeah. little dot is really the only species of coral that we have around here. Coral is kind of more associated with warmer waters, yeah. um, more tropical. But this is a species of coral we have here. And in a lot of ways, it's pretty similar to an anemone. Mm. And, and again, are in the Cnidarian phylum. So oh. they have a lot of characteristics that are similar. But this, it's called a red or an orange cup coral, sometimes a red cup coral. The Monterey Bay Aquarium has a great page about orange cup corals, which look like teeny tiny bright orange anemones. And the page says that corals in the cold waters along the coast of California don't build reefs like their tropical kin do. But this coral does make its own outer skeleton, that cup-like limestone base underneath. 
a cup coral larva crawls on the rocky seafloor before settling. After cementing its limestone skeleton into a rock, the coral is set for life. And these little guys are found from British Columbia to Baja, California. So anywhere with tide pools in California, keep an eye out for them. They're all about a centimeter wide, sometimes a little bigger, oftentimes a little smaller. Yeah. Do you know if there are corals that get bigger in other parts of California? Maybe in Southern California, okay. but I'm not sure. Okay, I looked this up and there are more corals in California, but they're deep sea corals. So they're not found in tide pools and they're not like the shallow coral reefs in warm tropical waters that we're used to thinking about. According to a page by the nonprofit ocean advocacy organization, Oceana, Few people are aware that the continental shelf, slope, and canyons of California's ocean are home to a diversity of deep-sea corals. Like redwoods, California's deep-sea corals can live to be hundreds to thousands of years old. Large corals, like hydrocorals, sea fans, and black corals, are found in high densities in the Channel Islands, Monterey Bay, and the Gulf of the Farallones, off San Francisco, and the continental slope off Northern California. Hydrocorals and Gorgonian sea fans are commonly seen by divers in Southern California. Okay, and then it goes on to say that scientists recently discovered a new species of deep sea coral off the coast of Santa Barbara. They named the new species Christmas tree coral since it grows over six feet tall and resembles pink, white, and red flocked Christmas trees. This discovery shows the importance of protecting areas that have not yet been trawled. Scientists have only explored less than 1% of California's seafloor. So lots more to learn out there. I just feel like, you know, there's so many little nooks and crannies. Uh -huh. and the way that these rocks come together, this is almost cave-like. And then over there's more open and exposed to the sun. And like, mm -hmm. it's just these incredible, in this very tightly packed area. You feel like you've gone far, but you haven't. It's a very tightly <laughs> yep, packed area. Yep. There's such diversity of little tiny habitats. Yeah, yeah, yes, indeed, yes. That's why I love the tide pools is they are just jam packed with life. And if you're looking from here and you're looking out into the distance, it's just rocks covered with seaweed, you know? Yeah. You can't really see anything until you look really close and you look in between rocks and can start to get an eye for what's what and then the world really blooms. It's such a dynamic complex place. The tide was very slowly starting to come back in at this point. So Michelle and I made our way up to the beach and found a log to sit on to continue our conversation. And I'm wondering kind of what your journey is to becoming interested in the ocean, becoming interested in tide pools. Yeah, so I mean, I've just, I've had the great privilege to grow up on the coast my whole life. I grew up in the Bay Area and I don't know. I mean, my family just, I guess, also held that value. And so that was our weekend outing. We would just go mm. to the beach. And I just feel so fortunate for that exposure. Like we would spend all day at the beach, you know, bonfire, like hot dogs over the fire, just like so playing boogie boarding all day long. And so I guess I just kind of have had that in me always. And then I'd say that my like naturalist exposure to the ocean and aquatic environments really started to grow when I started kayak guiding in mm. Tomales Bay. I just like, I don't know what came over me, but when I was in high school, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna see if I can be a kayak guide. And I, I was just like, I feel like, why, why, how did I think of that when I was 16 <laughs> years old looking back? But so I reached out to the local outfitter and he was, you know, the owner was like, sure. Yeah. Like come out on our, that on our guide trip. That doesn't like a liability. I know. <laughs> That's fine. I guess I, I, I exuded some sense of, you know, responsibility so you seem to know yourself very young <laughs> yeah and so I went out and 
You know, I was definitely young. I, I ended up not really guiding a lot at that time, but it, you know, I made those relationships. And so a few years later, I came back from college, my freshman year of college, and was looking for a job. So I worked with Blue Waters Kayaking full time for a summer and a fall. And I just realized that I loved it. I mean, I always knew that I loved water and the coast, but I, I realized that I really loved taking people out to those environments and mm. talking about them with people. And Tamales Bay has a huge diversity of life. There's tide pool animals because it's influenced by the ocean, but it also has things like bat rays and leopard mm. sharks and tons of harbor seals and lots of birds and also bioluminescence. And so I was just totally blown away with the environment and the opportunity to take people out there and increase that exposure. And then I moved up to Humboldt County, which again is on the coast and it's an incredible coastline up here and just further fell in love. And then during another break in college, I worked for a nonprofit in Alaska as a naturalist, taking people out tide pooling and out in the coastal forests, kind of in the Homer area. And that was another just amazing experience because the tide pools in Alaska are just insane because mm. the tidal exchange is a max of like 30 feet. So on a what? good low tide, the difference between the high tide and the low tide is 30 vertical feet. What? And so on a coastline that's, you know, not actually vertical, the tide will go out 100 feet or more. Oh, wow. So what is it here? It's, it's max like probably 10 feet, okay. but a normal tide is maybe like six, seven, eight feet difference. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. you can imagine that that just leaves unending opportunities for exploration oh, yeah. and any day, every day there was a good low tide, whereas here you really have to time it. But anyways, that was just another incredible experience seeing octopus and sunflower stars and all of these really amazing intertidal animals. And then meanwhile, you know, I was also in college studying environmental science with an emphasis in environmental education. So I really just have been on this like track of coastal education. Nowadays, I work for Trinidad Coastal Land Trust up here in Humboldt County based in Trinidad. And we're focused on public access. Speaking of access, back in the seaweed episode with Allison Poklemba, I mentioned that many beaches in California have beach wheelchairs available to check out for free. But I didn't think there were really any accessible tide pools in the state. Michelle Koontz, the guest on this episode, heard that episode and sent me an email letting me know that Trinidad Coastal Land Trust has beach wheelchairs available and that they've led a few all-abilities tide pooling walks in Trinidad. She pointed out that a beach with some flattish sand next to some intertidal rocks can make for some great tide pooling. So if you or someone you love uses a wheelchair, it might be worth checking in with local organizations to find out about all-abilities tide pooling outings or just to check out a beach wheelchair and find some exposed rocks to explore on your own at low tide. And a safety note for anyone exploring tide pools on your own, whether on wheels or on foot, just remember that these areas can be very slippery. So take any necessary precautions for that, including going with a buddy, wearing grippy shoes, and going slow like Michelle mentioned earlier. So the beach that we're at right now is a property that's managed by the organization that I work for. And through this work, I also get to bring people out tide pooling. That's mm. some of you know my favorite days. I mentioned this in the intro, but a quick update here is that Michelle is now the Marine Natural Resources Program Manager at the Resigini Rancheria, 
where she oversees the implementation of the tribe's marine monitoring program. So more great ocean stuff. But I'm wondering, one of the kind of threads that I want to pick up is kind of talking about the, the difference in the variation in the tides. Mm-hmm. And when people want to come out and see a low tide, like how, if they're not maybe coastal dwellers that yeah. are familiar with this, how do they figure out when to come? Yeah. So just a basic explanation of the tides is that the gravitational pull of the sun and the moon is having an effect on our ocean's water. And so the tide, you know, the the side of the earth, side of the ocean closest to the moon is going to be pulled up just slightly. So pulled up 30 feet or, you know, around here more like seven feet. And then the other side of the earth is going to be a low tide because all that ocean's water is kind of moved. And so throughout a day, we go through a tidal cycle where there's two high tides and two low tides. And I, you know, it gets a lot more complicated than that, but maybe save that for another That's episode. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, so basically every day the Earth's sea level is, sorry, the ocean sea level is fluctuating. Mm-hmm. And a very easy resource for figuring out what tide it's going to be any given day is to look up the tide charts on NOAA's website. So NOAA is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And if you just Google NOAA tide chart. That's the N-O-A-A tide chart. It comes up with a website that's very easy to use. You just, you plug in the day that you want to go to the beach, or you can even plug in the whole month. Mm. And it'll plot the tide daily for you on this like chart that kind of goes up and down. And the bottom of the the chart is going to be your low tide. And they'll tell you the time of day that it's happening and the level of tide. So the best times to go tide pooling are generally on a negative tide, so under zero. Like today's tide was about a negative half foot Mm -hmm. tide. So a negative tide or a minus tide is just one that's lower than average, which means that you can go farther out into the intertidal zone and see more life when you're out there. And then also when people are trying to plan a trip, how much does the season matter? If they're like, I can go to the beach any time of year, I'm gonna choose a season. Yeah, so I mean, the intertidal zone exists all year round. It's really just the strip of beach between the high and the low tide. So the intertidal zone is always going to be here, but there is some seasonality to the tide pools in that during the kind of spring into the summer, we have our algaes growing more. So our seaweeds and our kelps and they are habitat for invertebrates. So the more seaweeds there are, the more places for invertebrates to kind of live and hide and the more food for the herbivorous invertebrates. So definitely the summer tends to be the best time to go Mm. tide pooling because Mm -hmm. you just have a greater abundance of life. And you know, on the flip side of that, during the winter time, especially here on the North Coast, we just experienced a pretty pretty rough winter and, and sometimes it's, I still feel like it's happening mm-hmm. but you know we had some really big swells and a, and a lot of rain and a lot of cold and that meant that actually our tide were kind of stripped bare a little bit like mm. you know a lot of the seaweeds are annual so they will kind of just be like ripped up with the waves and they won't start going back until the spring and so you know it's, it's actually a little bit bare right now because mm-hmm. we've been experiencing that long winter and things are just starting to come back but you know, a lot of the animals like nudibranchs and things that are, you know, a little bit more mobile are going to be ripped off the rocks, essentially, and they won't survive a winter storm. But a lot of things that are able to more firmly attach can kind of hide under rocks or between crevices mm-hmm. and will just really hold on throughout the winter. But they tend to be a little bit more retreated into areas that you can't see. So, yes, checking Noah's tide chart for low tides between, like, 
April and October is going to be your best bet. And also I'll say that going tide pooling is very, you, you really have to follow that low tide, mm -hmm. which sometimes is happening at 7 a.m. like today. Sometimes it's happening at 9 p.m. <laughs> so it's, it's fun to go tide pooling at night too, but obviously it's best to be walking around during the daytime when you can see. So checking when that low tide is and, and timing it with a daylight hour is ideal. So that's another perk of summertime. You get more daylight yes. hours possible yep. for mm -hmm. those low tides. Yep, exactly. And as I kind of look out as we were out there, one of the things that really comes to mind is what dynamic habitats these are. So yeah. I'm wondering if you could explain a little bit about like what some of those factors are that are so variable that these animals are having to contend with. Yeah, I mean, so just looking out, we there's some bigger rocks, there's some smaller rocks, there's some sandy areas, there's even some like little muddy areas, and all those different factors are influencing what animals live where. Mm. So on the beach side of a big rock, you know, the outside of that rock is going to be experiencing a lot of wave action. So you're going to actually see different species living mm. on that side of the rock than you are on the beach side of the rock because oh. it's a little bit more protected from the waves. And it's not necessarily that you're going to see more or less. It's just going to be species that have evolved different adaptations to be able to contend with heavy wave action or less wave action. And it's actually pretty interesting on beaches that are more protected so that experience less waves, you actually see less diversity. I was wondering yeah. about that. Which is pretty interesting because, you know, if you think about it, these waves are coming in and they are dislodging animals. Mm. It's a high disturbance area. Mm. And oftentimes high disturbance leads to greater diversity mm. because I was mentioning this earlier, but competition for space is one of the biggest factors of who lives where in the tide pools because everything's just covered. And so the moment you get a, some real estate, some free space on the rock, you're going to get animals moving in and it's going to just create a more diverse assemblage of animals. Have you ever watched a documentary about the rainforest and there's a scene where a massive old tree falls? I feel like that's kind of like what Michelle's talking about here, because in the rainforest documentary, what inevitably happens is a great time lapse that shows the understory going nuts and like 10 different little baby trees vying for the newly available sunlight and space, trying to fill the gap where that previous tree lived. So the diversity is increased, at least temporarily, by that one disturbance. And in a tide pool that's getting a lot of wave action, disturbance is happening much more regularly than in a calm bay, for example. So really like the dynamics at play are just the topography of the rocks and the presence or absence of sandy substrate or mm. muddy substrate and the extent of the wave action and how strong of a force it's exerting. And so all of these different living things in these tide pools have had to adapt in different ways, mm -hmm. right? And so what are maybe kind of some of the most interesting adaptations that you think? Oh gosh, it's hard. There's so many. It's hard to say, yeah, <laughs> it's hard to say. Let's see. So one adaptation that I think is pretty interesting is the modes of reproduction that, oh, yeah. that species have evolved to have. So most species in the intertidal zone have a mechanism of reproduction called broadcast spawning. Whoa. which I just think is really interesting. So what, what that means is that a species will basically just release 
it's gametes, so it's, it's eggs and it's sperms, out into the currents. Mm. And oftentimes that's timed with the seasons too. And, you know, oftentimes like the phase of the moon is at play too, which is pretty interesting yeah. and complex. But so they'll broadcast, they'll eject their gametes into the currents and they will just be floating around as plankton for an amount of time. We don't really know always because that's hard to study. Yeah, you can't you really track yeah. plankton, <laughs> Put a radio but they're floating around. And you know, these species are, are releasing thousands, if not millions of gametes, like high volume. Wow. And they just kind of hope that the gametes will find each other in the water columns, so the eggs and the sperm, and then they will be fertilized and they'll morph into a larval stage. And some animals have various larval stages mm -hmm. with various capabilities to move around. There's a lot of really interesting questions around like how larvae can recruit to a rock or you know the intertidal zone. There's a lot of questions as to like are they able to choose? Are they mm. able to like direct the places that they're going? Are they able to be like, oh this is a sandy substrate, that's not gonna work for me. I'm gonna just keep floating around until I find an appropriate place that I wanna settle. So there's a lot of like really cool questions around that wow. that I find very intriguing. So broadcast spawning is a, an adaptation that I find very interesting. And a couple considerations there are like, maybe that's why the Pacific coast has a lot of really similar species over a really broad stretch, mm -hmm. a broad and narrow stretch of habitat. Mm -hmm. So that's just interesting to think about. Another adap reproduction adaptation that some animals have is brooding. So some species like the brooding anemone and a type of sea star called the six-rayed star, they will actually keep their young with them. Whoa. Yeah, and that's pretty different than broadcast spawning because they are, they're either producing their eggs in their body and becoming fertilized by plankton drifting by, mm. so the, the sperm larva drifting by, or the sperm phase of the reproduction drifting by, and their eggs will become fertilized, and then they'll brood their young underneath them, on, under their body. So the sea like star, a mother hen. yes, exactly, <laughs> oh exactly, God. yeah. So they'll, so the six-rayed star will, will kind of be like punched over on top of these tiny baby stars that, you know, as they get larger and larger, they start to move out. And same with the brooding anemone is, she'll have her eggs inside of her and the sperm will come in and they'll be fertilized in her body and then they'll move out of her mouth Whoa. and then move down <laughs> onto the base of her body. I was just starting to think that this one sounded a little like human reproduction till she said that. And we'll start to grow from there. And so it's interesting to think about that method of reproduction because they're actually having a caregiver, mm -hmm. you know, similar to humans and, and right. lots of other mammals is like, maybe that has been beneficial to them because their mother can kind of like, you know, clean the eggs and can watch over them, protect them from predators. Whereas the millions of eggs that are getting broadcast spawned into the ocean's currents have no protection. They're just floating right. around and inevitably a huge majority of those gametes and larval stages will just die because maybe they're not finding the right place or they're getting eaten or they're you know, drifting way out to sea instead of out to the intertidal zone. So those are kind of two different contrasting ways of reproduction that both have different benefits, but both work because those animals are, are surviving and thriving. And there's gotta be so much diversity. I mean, even just in our, what, 45 minutes or so that we spent exploring the tide pools, we saw so much diversity and on a lot of different scales. Yeah. And so imagine there's so many different strategies, life mm -hmm. strategies that all of these 
different organisms have evolved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, another major suite of adaptations to think about is one of the bigger threats to animals living in the intertidal zone is desiccation. And we kind of mm. talked about that a little bit before because these animals are really uniquely adapted to be both terrestrial for half of the day, more, you know, give or take half of the day, and submerged by the ocean, give or take half of the day. And so that's a really unique place to be mm -hmm. in. Like we are fully land animals. Right. We are <laughs> adapted to walk on land, breathe on land, etc. And like say a whale is fully adapted to be an aquatic animal. Mm -hmm. But these intertidal animals are in this in-between where they have to adapt to both air and water. And so, you know, something that they have to have evolved is the ability to not dry out mm -hmm. because they do rely on the ocean for feeding and for reproduction. So they have evolved many different ways to avoid that. So, you know, the most common trait is the presence of a shell. Mm -hmm. So things like barnacles have shells that keep them from drying out, mussels, limpets, snails, anything with like a hard shell. So those animals do have different ways of keeping dry, but a lot of them are just firmly attached to the rocks during the low tide. And then they keep this little microcosm of moisture inside of their shells so that they can live and survive during the low tide. But then when the high tide comes up, they cruise around and feed. But then there's other things like sea stars and anemones that have softer bodies. And they are just like right on the cusp of like, if they were maybe exposed to, to the air for any longer, maybe they wouldn't live. And so they have mm. to find this perfect balance in the intertidal zone where if they go too high on a too hot of a day, they're going to be you know, threatened by drying out and dying. So they have to kind of play this balance of making sure that they are staying moist enough. Right, and what happens if they go too low? Yeah, well, there's more predators down there. Oh, yeah. so they're escaping all the predation up Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also tons of predators in the intertidal zone too, but yeah, I mean, it's just a habitat. Like maybe if, you, if they went further down, there would be more of a threat of, say, carnivorous fish. Mm -hmm. This is, some real estate that they can use. And if, if they can live out of the water for a given period of time, they've got a home. So, right. so it's worth it. It's, it's worth, worth it. For it. Them. It's worth it. Yeah. <laughs> and speaking of some of those predators that exist up here, like why is it that these birds, like the oyster catchers that we just saw, I mean, why is it that there aren't just like flocks of birds just <laughs> descending and eating everything? Gosh, it all up, I know? don't know. I mean, I don't know if I can answer that question. We do have some oyster catchers flying around. I also see egrets and herons that visit the tide pools. And you know, every now and then a bald eagle or an osprey mm -hmm. will come in. But I, I really can't say why there's not more. But there's also plenty of, you know, the, the food web is complex in the tide pools. Sure. Like a sea slug is a predator of some things and a sea star is one of the top predators of the intertidal zone so maybe they don't look like a predator mm -hmm. but they are and they are controlling the distribution of other animals but as to why there's not more birds I, I'm not sure yeah, <laughs> maybe they're too feeding. hard like yeah too hard to break open the oysters or yeah. too hard to like yeah they've could adapted be. to protect themselves yeah, against totally. those guys yeah and you bring up a good point that the shell on a lot of those upper intertidal species also is to protect themselves against predators like birds, where mm -hmm. it's easier for birds to access the upper levels of the intertidal zone than the lower zones. And you mentioned the food web. I'm kind of wondering if you can give a little overview. I know food webs are complex, but like <laughs> in general, kind of who are the players? 
yeah. the, the food web? Well, again, that, that is a little hard to answer because we saw dozens of species out there. But essentially, you know, you have your your photosynthesizing, your producers at the bottom. So all the seaweeds out here are going to be the base of the food web. And so that also kind of dictates the seasonality of things too, like I was mentioning earlier. Mm. But yeah, so you also have a lot of like encrusting algaes, like diatoms and things like that that are growing on the rock is like a slimy film. And so you have your, a lot of snails and different grazers, like chitons will be cruising over those rocks and cleaning off all of the little, you know, like smaller kinds of algae. So like the rabbits and the deer and the, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, totally, yeah, yeah. And then let's see, you kind of will also have your filter feeding organisms. So that's your mussels, clams, other types of shellfish, and also like your anemones too. All of those are more sedentary feeders, mm. so they're going to be feeding on plankton in the water. So they have either like siphons that pull water into their bodies or tentacles with mm. barbs on them that hook on to plankton. So that's, you know, that's their method of eating. So, so they're going to be also eating, you know, your producers, your plants. Mm -hmm. And then you also, you know, you get a little bit bigger in scale and you have things like sea stars, which are predators, and they're eating the filter feeders like mussels. They eat other things too. And you have things like nudibranchs, grazers that are eating, they eat a lot of different things, different species, but they will cruise on like sponges and other tunicates, so the encrusting animals growing on the rock and then you get even bigger and like you know sometimes you see octopus in the tide uh -huh. pools octopuses are like celebrities to me they're on the top of my list of species that i want to see in a tide pool but haven't yet and they're going cool. to be eating most anything but they really like crabs and mussels really anything that they can break open with their their beak their internal feeding jaws <laughs> okay so them and like sea stars and those yeah are kind of higher up uh -huh, the, those the are kind of higher river. up and you know your your birds too and in places where sea otters are still intact their populations are still intact that's also going to be a predator of like urchins yeah yeah does it bother you when people call them starfish uh it doesn't bother me but i do call them sea stars okay okay <laughs> <laughs> I guess that's one of those things to just clear up, you know, it's not a fish. It's right. Not that anybody really, I think, thinks it's a fish, but maybe some people do. <laughs> right. It's just known as that. Okay. And you can feel free to pass on this one because I know that this is more your region. Mm -hmm. But do you know in general, like, maybe a few hot spots for tide pulling across the state? Yeah. Good question. Well, I'll start with here, right yes. where we are. Trinidad is definitely known for its rocky coastline. You, you mentioned that you're going up to Sumeg State Park later today, and so that's another really great spot for tide pooling. Palmer's Point, and there's another beach that I can't remember the name of, but anywhere where there's rocks, you're gonna find tide pooling. So I have been tide pooling up in Del Norte County, so like around Crescent City. There, I've had some really great times up there at this beach called Garth's, oh. and it's, it's a surf spot, and so the rocks there also are home to a lot of diversity and going south i've spent some time tide pooling in, in mendocino county and mm -hmm. sonoma county but not a lot honestly so i know more about like marin county mm. it's not you know so tamales bay I, I mentioned that i've i've spent a lot of time there and i grew up in that area and you see a little bit of different things because it's more protected it's a bay and so you're not getting like you know a lot of wave action so you see some different species but there are definitely some invertebrates there. 
And then also Duxbury Reef is a great mm. place to go. So that's kind of like around Bellinas, just okay. north of San Francisco. There's some really great tide pooling there. Nice. Yeah. And I'll also just, just mention that like, you know, the organization that I work for, Trinidad Coastal Land Trust, is, you know, we have a great education program. And so I, I would recommend people to look up those kind of organizations in your area because mm. a lot of places have free or low cost tide pool like classes and, and walks that people can so go on. And I feel like that's kind of the best way to get like, what's the insider scoop? Like what's the best beaches to go? Like what are the things to look out for? What are the like unique etiquettes to follow while you're in that given in that specific area? I really haven't spent a lot of time in central and southern California, mm-hmm. so I can't speak to that. CaliforniaBeaches.com has a great page on the best tide pools in southern California, which I'll link in the show notes in case that would be more accessible for you. What is the most interesting or rare creature you've ever gotten oh to see gosh. in a tide pool? That's such a hard question because <laughs> I feel like you know you have your your charismatic species right sure. which we tend to be attracted to and and you know I think of octopus mm-hmm. that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind that's like on my tide pool bucket list yeah I want to and they an are amazing yeah. they're so charismatic they're so incredible and I've seen a few I've Ooh. never seen one at this beach but mm-hmm. I've seen a tiny one just you know closer to the town of Trinidad and I've seen a bigger one at another beach just north of here. And I mean, they're just amazing. They have so many cool things about them. You should just do a whole episode on octopus. Oh, we should, yeah, for sure. <laughs> because I'm I could tell so you down. things that I know about them because I'm just such a nerd. But <laughs> so that would be a favorite. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's also all these other creatures that are just fun and interesting to find. Like right. every time I go out, I'm like, I feel like every time I go out, I have a favorite thing that I find, you know, like, like a couple weeks ago, maybe about a month ago, I went tide pooling at Baker Beach here and I saw a juvenile sunflower star, which, you know, are again, really cool species. But I think that it was so interesting to see them because they're really rare right now Mm. because of, you know, population collapse that happened some years back. A New York Times article titled A 24 Armed Hunter Threatened with Extinction is Set to Get Protection says that the sunflower sea stars have been devastated by a wasting syndrome that has been linked to the effects of climate change. It killed more than 90% of sunflower sea stars from 2013 to 2017, and what officials described as the largest marine wildlife disease outbreak on record. So it's very exciting that Michelle found one. And so that tide pool outing, that was my favorite thing that I saw. But sometimes, you know, I'll just find something that I've never seen before and I'll consider that to be my favorite. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, I also just want to give a shout out to the nudibranchs. Nudibranchs are sea slugs, but don't let that unflattering description deceive you because these things are gorgeous. And I don't know if you've seen a lot of Winnie the Pooh movies as I have, but I feel like I'm watching that particularly psychedelic dream sequence that's full of heffalumps and woozles anytime I look at a nudibranch. We didn't get to see one today, but they are another really incredible group of invertebrates that I love just by the diversity of their color and their body shapes. So nudibranchs are a type of sea slug that nudibranch breaks down to naked lung. Mm. And the naked lung is important because it's it's how they breathe. They have these really unique external gills mm. that come in the form of either these like plumes or like tentacles covering the slug's body. And they're often different colors and patterns and shapes. And they tend to be really small, only like a couple inches long. And yeah, I, I definitely got to give them my love. I don't know if I could say they're my favorite, but I do love them because um, they're just so beautiful. They are. Yeah. I've only seen that one in person yeah. that Allison and I saw. Yeah. And it was 
beautiful, but yeah. I've seen pictures. And yeah, really yeah, cool. yeah. All right, last question. What about tide pools still takes your breath away? <laughs> I think I was kind of just getting at it, but I swear every time I go out, I see something new. Mm -hmm. It just feels like it's just endless opportunity for learning and exploring. Like every rock is just covered in life. And, you know, I love that, again, it's like the, the kind of contrast between charismatic and like the green blur. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you have your charismatic species, but then a lot of things out here are not that charismatic, you know, they're, they're just like, this brown shell and you're like what's that <laughs> but then when you look closer when you look closer they're, it, they're just so interesting and the more I learn about the complex dynamics of an, an area where it's half of the time covered by water half the time exposed to air it just creates these really incredible adaptations that I just love to learn about so mm. yeah that's my long-winded answer to that question that's great no I love it that's perfect well, Michelle, thank you so much for taking me out here and showing me this beautiful place. Yes, it's my honor. Yes, definitely. You're welcome. So try going a little slower than your usual pace. Look a little closer at the organisms around you and watch the world bloom right before your eyes. I want to give Michelle a big thank you for getting up early and driving out to the beach on a cold morning to catch a low tide with me and to share such a wealth of accumulated knowledge about these species and these systems. If you haven't listened yet, definitely go back and check out the seaweed episode with Allison Poklemba. It really is the perfect companion to this episode. And Michelle and Allison have even led tide pool outings together because their expertise complements each other so well. Don't forget that this is the last episode of season three, and I'll now be taking a break to travel the state collecting lots of wonderful interviews for season four. And if you've enjoyed season three and are looking forward to season four, please pick a favorite episode and share it with a friend who might enjoy it. This might be someone who likes hiking or gardening or just staring longingly out their office window pretending they were a bird. Word of mouth is the absolute best way to help an independent podcaster grow. And every time you share an episode, it is such a vote of confidence because I know how valuable everyone's time is and how much content there is in the world to consume. And it means the world to me that you take the time to listen and that you think it's worth the time of your friends and family to listen to. So thank you for listening and sharing and reviewing and all of the wonderful things that you do. If you're on Patreon, I already posted an extra clip for this episode, and another one is coming up soon, so keep an eye out for that, which will include muscles, bissel thread, sponges, and some laughs. The book for our March Patreon book club meeting is Silent Spring, which I've never actually read before, even though it's a classic, so I'm looking forward to a great discussion on that. And finally, don't forget to follow me at Golden State Naturalist on Instagram and TikTok, or join my email list at goldenstatenaturalist.com to keep up with me during the break. Something interesting from my week is that for quite a while now, I've had a suspicion, and this week it was finally confirmed. So for months, I've been noticing some young oak trees in my neighborhood with missing limbs. And at first glance, I was really upset because I thought a human was just hacking off baby oak limbs. And then I looked a little closer and noticed that the missing limbs all sort of looked gnawed through. So then I got really excited because it looked like it was done by a beaver. But beavers don't usually go for oaks, and the limbs were so tiny, and it was just really hard to tell for sure if that was what was up. But this week, I went back to check out a cottonwood tree that fell down during a recent storm, and entire big limbs have been chewed off in exactly the way a beaver chews through a tree limb. The remaining part comes to a point, and I could see tooth marks in everything. 
and I could even see a little muddy trail going to some nearby water. So obviously I followed the trail, but I haven't found a lodge or a dam yet. So I'm not sure where this beaver is setting up camp, but I'm so excited to finally have it confirmed that there are beavers in my neighborhood. I'm going to keep looking for that lodge and I'll post pictures on social media if I find one. And if you don't know why this is so exciting, please go check out the beaver episode immediately. Or, okay, do that after you're done with the seaweed episode. And this is it for season three. Thank you for listening. I can't wait to see you on the next episode of Golden State Naturalist. Bye. The song is called I Don't Know by Grapes, and you can find a link to the song as well as the Creative Commons license in the show notes.